At this point, it's stating the obvious to say the health and care system is in an extremely difficult position, one that continues to have an impact on staff and leaders. So what is it like leading in such uncertain and challenging times? And what is helping? Hello, and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we explore the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Ruth Robertson, a senior fellow at the King's Fund, And today I'm delighted to be joined by two really fantastic guests, Dr. Faye Gilder, Medical Director at the Princess Alexandra Hospital NHS Trust in Harlow, and Matthew Rice, who's one of our senior consultants here at the Fund. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Thanks, it's great to be here. Uh, Yeah, likewise. A start-off question to you, Faye. Before becoming medical director at Princess Alexandra Hospital, you worked at Cambridge University Hospital for many years. What inspired you to make that change? I had been a consultant and anaesthetist for 18 years um, with a particular interest or a particular interest in liver transplantation, uh, multivisceral organ transplantation, and also um, perioptive medicine. And I had uh, worked with colleagues to develop what remains a, a, a really good service there. And I also um, led the anaesthesia side of the um, transplant team. And I had become senior and very experienced, but I also recognised I had some other skills. I had taken on an additional role, which was around um, clinical director for improvement and transformation there, which was in the end, half, t- half of my time was spent within that role, which was a cross-organisational role. And I was looking to to take my leadership further and then an email went round all of us to say that this role was um, offered so I explored it and the thing that uh, inspired me to move was actually a conversation with my current chief executive officer who I immediately felt a connection to in terms of shared values particularly around making a difference for those if you like populations that are underserved and Harlow definitely Uh, has a a fairly large proportion of that. And can you say anything more about how that has panned out, your your kind of passion to focus on underserved communities? What's that challenge been like at at the Princess Alexandra Hospital? Well, it's not not specific to Princess Alexandra, actually. It's about NHS leadership and the challenges NHS leaders face when they're trying to make a difference. Because I would say that the majority of NHS leaders that I meet are there because they want to make a difference. I think what I hadn't predicted was how difficult that is because many of of the things that make a difference to your staff are things that you don't have a lot of influence over. So that would be, for example, the state of your hospital. So we, we know there's lots of hospitals that need rebuilding, at, at least 40. Then there's a, a work, the workforce uh, strategies and the approach to um, workforce, not, not just into who does what, when and how, but actually how many you need. And then how, of course, that is funded. Um, it's a huge proportion of our budget goes on workforce isn't it, in the NHS, huge. And yet um, what you constantly read in not just our staff survey, but many staff surveys is we wish there were more people. And if you speak to our junior doctors, and this isn't just Harlow junior doctors, I know other junior doctors, one of their big reflections is there are not enough staff. So what you're up against is two things that are really difficult to influence. So then you have to think, I had to think about, well, what is it I can make a difference? Where can I make a difference? So I would have said I'd, I'd spent the first two years 
really, really challenged by how I can even feel that I'm making a difference because the answer that comes to me is around culture. And everyone knows that culture takes five to seven years. So how you can feel you're making a difference to the culture of an organisation, it takes a long time to begin to sense that. I do feel that NHS leaders are rather set up to fail because of the things they have very little control over. And yes, we can speak up, but I don't even think we have a great deal of influence in some areas either. And the things that we do need to influence are going to take time. So a hospital from inception to completion these days is about 14 years, isn't it? If you think about the announcement for the new hospitals and when we might expect to get ours, and there's always an if, isn't there? And if you think about how long does it take to implement an electronic health record, five years, doesn't it? Because you've got to go through a whole series of hoops in terms of business cases, and then you need to put that in place and that will make a difference but there's a whole culture change that goes behind that as well and then in terms of workforce strategy we all know how long it takes to train a nurse or a doctor or a physiotherapist or you know an ops manager all of that takes a huge amount of time so there are no real quick fixes to the things that you wish you could fix quickly um, and that you know when you talk to people when you ask them what would make a difference these are the commonest things but it's tricky because of what you don't have control over. Matthew, is that something that comes up in in your leadership practice, this issue of of working on cultural embedded issues that have such long timeframes and and how do do leaders get a sense of achievement and sort of understand their, their role and worth within that really complex environment? I think we would say the primary purpose for leadership is is in relation to developing culture, creating culture. But of course, the culture, um, as you might find it, when you make the transition into a huge job like Feymade, um, also is very powerful in influencing what it feels possible to do as a leader. So there's this kind of interesting dynamic, isn't there? And I think most people can relate to it about the extent to which leadership shapes culture and or indeed culture shapes leadership or indeed the felt experience of the leader. So I think it's, it's both ferociously difficult and absolutely an, an intrinsic part of the primary leadership task. And one I think that um, generally we're not particularly good at preparing leaders for. I don't know whether, I don't know what you think about that, Faye, particularly, but, you know, I think it's, it's kind of known, it's implicit, it's implied, but finding your feet in all of that, it's tricky, isn't it? It's hard. Yeah, I do tell the people I work with that I probably knew how to do about 1% of the job when I started. And there's a huge ask, and I'm going to speak only about the medical director's portfolio now, but of course, it's very, I'm sure it's very similar across all of my executive colleagues' portfolio, but the portfolio is enormous. And being able to lead a portfolio requires an understanding of your portfolio. And so for quite a long time, I spent getting into the detail in order to then move away from the detail in order to lead it in the direction that was the right direction. So, for example, I'm the executive lead for risk. Now, I know a huge amount of clinical risk, about clinical risk. It's, it was my job, is to judge clinical risk and, and manage clinical risk and mitigate clinical risk. But I have never had to think about risk on a, an organisational scale. And yet, all of a sudden, I was the executive lead. And so I've gone from a position where I, I am an expert. I, I absolutely was an expert in, in anesthesia and the elements that I was, um, was practising to not being an expert at all. 
And I think the most powerful tool I have in my armory for that is that uh, of humble inquiry or curiosity. A good example of that would be how I give myself permission not to be an expert, how I overtly describe to others that I'm not an expert, and then how I use questions to still um, enable people to trust me because I've just said I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> and so I so the the the, the really um, wonderful piece around Shine's work and humble curiosity is, is that you're, you it enables you to say I, I need to understand your experience I need to understand your work in order for me to you know to do the work I need to do kind of thing so those are open-ended questions there um I give myself permission to ask those questions and then I continue I continue to ask questions and they're open questions so that I learn more about the scenario that I'm facing at that particular time I'm really struck by that change from from being a medical expert into this executive team role where you're leading and and, and no longer an expert and I just wonder what what support you you get when you make that shift it, it the shift you describe, I'm sure, would resonate with many people who are stepping up into those executive roles. I maintain that the medical director role is somewhat unique from this perspective because many of the other executive roles, effectively, there's a training program, isn't there? You're an ops manager and then you're a senior ops manager and then you're a deputy chief operating officer and then you're a chief operating officer. But my career pathway didn't do that at all. You know, my roles are very much grounded in on the ground, making a difference to patients or staff, either through running a good service or through improvement, which is all about what matters to you for staff, isn't it? And I don't think that that is recognised necessarily by other executives. Now, my executive team, extremely supportive. My chief executive, extremely supportive. But nevertheless, I think the the medical director experience is is quite different to the many of those uh, who join particularly the traditional roles which is chief executive which is chief nurse which is uh, chief operating officer and director of people um, those are all fairly described and proscribed trajectories so the support I required was fairly considerable I had an executive coach and who I'd had in my prior role but I also then found a coach around emotional intelligence not because I lack it but but I think I have so much of it, it's actually quite hard. It made it quite hard. Uh, so I needed that. I, I did at some point go for some counselling just to, to deal with the impact of feeling so responsible. And um, I really relied quite heavily on my family. There is something about self-care, isn't there? Um, and so for me, I, I learned about self-care through my executive coach and I understood what I needed to do. It's the discipline of doing it. And so in my case... Quite a lot of it was around meditation or journaling or recognizing where I get my energy from, which is outside running, it's exercise, but it's also being in the natural environment. And then more recently, what I recognized is that I had began to feel very one-dimensional and in that in any conversation outside of work, I still only I talked about work. What I've had to do is make myself read about other things 
I don't know if you know the book Atomic Habits, but I've read about two pages of it. But the two pages that I read gives you permission when you build a habit to literally spend one minute a day on it. So most of us think, oh, we've got to do half an hour of exercise every day, don't we? Otherwise, bad. Um, whereas I'm the opposite. I read this book and thought, ah, oh, brilliant. Somebody's given me permission to say you can do one minute of exercise every day. And all you have to do is one minute. And in, in from my perspective, turn that into reading. I would have to read one page that's actually quite a supportive approach to the discipline of self-care even even if it's just lighting a smelly candle for five minutes but there is something about taking a moment for yourself because it goes back to if you don't look after yourself you can't look after others but I needed I've had to I needed a lot of support over the last two years really and I love that idea of, of just doing something helping to build a habit rather than it having to be the intimidation of a 30-minute run or what have you. Um, Matthew, I know you work with medical leaders ac- across the system. Is there anything you wanted to add from your experience? Does does any of what Faye was saying particularly resonate with, with what you've heard elsewhere? Yeah, it certainly does, Ruth. It, 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 it resonates with many stories of doctors in leadership roles at many levels, um, of organisations and systems, but I think um, the, tr- the, the kind of transition that that, that, that Faye is describing into one of um, an, a, an executive medical director role does bring with it, I think, some particular transitional issues or, or challenges, I think, the like of which Faye's begun to speak to. That also speaks perhaps also to the particular role that um, doctors have in our organisations and in our health and care systems, and also the kind of roles that we put doctors into in our health and care systems. I'm talking about the kind of roles that aren't necessarily the preserve of something uh, like a kind of formal leadership role, for example, but some of the kind of um, projections that we put onto doctors, um, the expectations that we put onto doctors, the kind of things that doctors can't possibly live up to, but we, we kind of almost unconsciously expect it of them. I think in my experience, that plays out a hundred times over when people like Faye take up an executive role um, around a board table. And, and, and in particular, what comes the way of the role when things are feeling really, really, really uncertain, when everybody is extremely anxious? What is it that happens to the experience of people in the medical director role? And I think as Faye's articulated, that isn't necessarily anything particularly to do with the person in role, but it's what that person in role represents and what they have to hold for and on behalf of the system, I think, that is uniquely the preserve of that role. Yeah, I'm a bit in awe, Faye, of of that really disciplined approach to self-care that you've taken and your ability to ask for help. What you're describing, I think, for me, are a set of leadership practices that don't get written about a lot and often don't get the attention they deserve because possibly they're badged under the guise of self-care. But these are really, for me, hardcore leadership practices that keep you safe and the system in which you're taking up leadership in as safe as possible. Faye, we all know that people in the health and care system are facing many challenges at the moment, but what are some of the key issues for you as a leader working in the system? That's a huge question, isn't it? For me, it goes back to what does it feel like to work in the system? One of our big challenges, and this is nationally, I'm not specific to my organisation, is about retention of staff, uh, never mind recruitment. And I often think of the holy grail is how do we 
how do we feel valued and how do those that, in my case, I lead, feel valued? How do we make them feel valued? And for me, it goes back to how do we understand their their lived experience? How do we listen to their lived experience? How do we hear it and how do we respond to it? I don't think the people that we're listening to expect us to magically wave a wand and fix it. What they want to do is say, look, you're leading in this organization and I want you to know what it feels like to work here. And I think just taking that time to ask questions about that is extremely powerful. And I, I can describe feedback I've had because when I have gone out on into our clinical areas, the questions I ask are that, how does it feel? What does it feel like for you? What, you know, what are you up against? I do ask the question, what would help? And then I'm honest with what is possible and why those, some of those things are actually not possible or take time. And I think that's the other piece. It's about fairness, honesty, transparency. And the final thing is that that people understand and feel when you actually care about them. And the wonderful opportunity you have when when you do speak to people and we do you do go out and do take the time and that can be a virtual conversation it doesn't have to be physically on the ward is that people come away thinking gosh you know well at least they care because that does really matter yeah as a medical director you've got such a lot of influence but also responsibility Faye and I just wondered if there's anything more you want to say about what it's like shouldering that during the really unsettling times we're, we're in at the moment. How, how does it feel? So I referred before about asking for um, or having some counselling. And that was because of the sense of not being good enough. And that is, I know plenty of colleagues who suffer from that. And it's not necessarily imposter syndrome, I don't think. It's just you don't feel good enough because 95% of the emails you get are asking you, to think about things you don't know enough about. Yes, it's got better now, definitely, because I, you know, I've had two cycles, two full years. I think that's one, one thing, it's not feeling good enough. The other is fear. There, I don't think we talk about fear very often. I think people see it as a weakness, but actually this is, it is, it is frightening. You know, one of my roles is the voice of patient at board and therefore patient safety. And another of my roles very much is about responsibility to the people who work um, in my hospital and what I can do in terms of the context of their daily lived experience. And I feel very fearful. So there's a direct link, isn't there, about your daily lived experience and then the care patients get absolutely direct link and uh, and absolutely passionate about patients patient safety but if we don't get it right for staff we're not going to get it right for patients people listening to this podcast will recognize that this is being recorded around the time of the second period of industrial action so i feel fear for my colleagues and i feel fear because of the pressure they're under fear because of the emotions that are going to arise and perhaps the behaviors that may inadvertently appear. I feel obviously fear for the care our patients are getting, although certainly in in my organisation it's being delivered brilliantly by consultants and it was last time as well. And and we have evidence that we have really delivered very very good care under the circumstances. And I feel fear for the impact on the organisation. 
particularly when there is so much that we need to do to bring our, our organisation forward. It's full of good people, but it has a lot of challenges. And I feel fear for those initiatives being derailed by by things like this, where so much of, and particularly my headspace, has been taken up either with planning or overseeing uh, um, our our hospital at the time. So, so yeah, so it's it, there is, and, and then it's about, so what do I do when I drive to work and I feel fear? How do I deal with that? And the answer to that, by the way, is I listen to books to try and help me reflect on, you know, what I'm feeling. So look, I've, I've listened to an awful lot of um, books around leadership and management practices, not necessarily in the healthcare context at all, um, going going to work anyway. I don't listen to those on the way back. Which are your, which have been your favourite uh, audiobooks to listen to about leadership? Are there any that you'd recommend to our listeners as uh, must-listens or must-reads? There are a huge number I have to say, because I've listened to a huge number of books, um, Amy Edmondson's book, Fearless Organisation, because it talks a lot about psychological safety. And there's a fantastic example of how a particular leader in a hospital goes around asking people, where, was there, did they have a concern about patient safety today? That was that was really that's a, a brilliant book. So that'd be one. I have listened to um, Chris Avoyce's book on negotiation, uh, which is absolutely wonderful. Completely different, but absolutely wonderful because if we think you know, into our whole practice is around negotiation and the art of negotiation, and I don't mean that in a kind of um, business-like, hard-nosed way. I mean it's about how do we talk to each other, how do we listen to each other, how do we get to a common ground, and then how do we move forward, understanding the different positions that we're in. Obviously, Cal Dweck's book on mindset is very powerful, isn't it? And talks about um, sensed emotion, an awful lot about sensed emotion. So where do you feel emotion? So we 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 see emotion, we hear emotion, and then we feel emotion. Um, and if again, um, uh, Susan David's book on emotional agility is absolutely transformational around understanding emotion and the power of it and how we process it. But this particular book talks about interoception, which is out the flat, you know, when you... So I, when I'm anxious, I feel sick. I, you know, I, I never get sick, but it's all in my stomach. That's interoception. And then it's what do you do with that information? You know, so, okay, fine. So I've, my stomach is feeling sick. What am I feeling sick about? And then trying to use that as data. And this book sort of pulls it all all together in, in, in a way that's quite influential to, to me, but I'm still yet to process the last two parts of it, which is about um, the future, future change organisations. How do we, how do we work with change with the sort of wisdom at the beginning of the book? Um, I can go on and on. Those are just a few. That's fascinating. And I feel like I'm learning a lot from you today about the importance of sort of listening to your body and observing your reactions to things and using them as data to support you in, in, in working better. And it's so powerful to hear you speak so vulnerably and honestly about the challenges and, and, and your approach to leadership, Faye. I'm just wondering, Matthew, if there's anything you can add about what tools leaders can use to help them cope with these emotions like fear and, and these powerful emotions that they are faced with at the moment when leading in the health and care system. Feeling vulnerable is a, is a kind of an intrinsic part of, of being able to lead or lead effectively. That's, that's my view. Leadership for me is in part about connecting to humanity, our own humanity and the humanity of others. And that feels just particularly and especially relevant right now in a kind of socio-cultural context and in a health and care context. So if we're working with what it means to be a human doing in a leadership role, 
And for me, how you create spaces in order to in order to in, in order to to be with your own vulnerability first and foremost, I think is absolutely critical. And inevitably, the moment you start to connect to your own vulnerability, um, I think that space gets flooded with all sorts of difficult emotions, and not least of all, um, fear and anxiety. And I think fear and anxiety for most people working in a health and care context, certainly so, fear and anxiety is, is omnipresent. It's everywhere. It's in the ether. And it can't be avoided. So I think the ability to find a, a space in which it's possible to be able to lean into these emotions, just as Faye has described, to be able to kind of notice and name them. So to develop, I suppose, what, what's sometimes called emotional literacy, so you become really adept at being able to notice and name what it is that you're feeling. And in that embodied sense, as Faye has described, to be able to locate it perhaps somewhere, you know, in your, in your, in your very physicality. So that you are both a way of kind of storing it and also kind of getting to know it and also using it seems to be important. And I think that's, that's not work that you can do on your own. Those aren't spaces necessarily that you can create just in relationship to yourself. So I think some of those kind of spaces that Faye has spoken about, not least of all, maybe working with a coach who can hold that space for you and who can be with you, be compassionately with you. I'm reminded about the, um, the meaning of compassion, which is about being with the other in suffering, being with suffering, feels to me to be absolutely fundamental. If you're not to feel, if you're not to get completely overwhelmed by the felt experience in relationship to leading, or you deny the feelings in relationship to leading, both of which I think are equally dangerous places to be. So I think... Developing a, a broader emotional vocabulary, finding a safe space, whoever that might be with, maybe some coaching, absolutely acknowledging that to feel in relation to the leadership role is not only normal, but also desirable, but knowing also that you have a right to a safe space in which you begin to kind of decompress and make some sense of what those feelings are telling you, both in relationship to what might be going on for you, but as Faye has so articulately put, in relation to the other or the system, seems to me to be really essential. Such an important insight when leading in such uncertain times that we're in at the moment. Um, it's been a real privilege to talk to both of you today and hear about your experiences and, and your approach. It's all we've got time for, but thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. And you can get in touch with us via Twitter. Our account is at the Kingsfund. The producer for this episode was Emma Sheffield and it has been edited by Bespoken Media. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, thanks to you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.